Last week, we saw from the life of Hezekiah that we should humbly seek and receive God's help. And we're switching back from sort of a narrative section to uh, more of a prophetic feel. Um, obviously, the book of Isaiah has a lot that is more structured like uh, poetry and those sorts of things, other than these excerpts like we looked at last week that are historical narratives. Uh, there's also a break between that most people would recognize between the two parts of Isaiah from chapter 1 through 39 to chapter 40 through 66. Chapters 1 through 39 were focused more on the past of uh, Israel and Judah and their sinfulness leading up to that point and uh, some of the circumstances at that time. And then the, the second part, Isaiah 40 to 66, is focused more looking toward Israel's restoration. After God has sent them into exile, after they've received uh, discipline and purification for their various idolatry and pride and all these sorts of things, um, God is going to restore them, God is going to deliver them, God is going to do amazing things on their behalf. This has led some scholars to say, well, two different people wrote the book of Isaiah, which uh, quite frankly is nonsense to say that the same person can't talk about two different topics in the book that he wrote, right? Uh, so... I kind of betrayed what I was thinking about that there, right? Um, the reason that people come up with ideas like that is, I think when it comes right down to it, there's not a lot that can be done in terms of innovation when it comes to the Bible. So people come up with all sorts of theories and ideas to get doctorates and to be recognized and all that sort of thing. And quite frankly, there's probably not a great deal of new information to add at this point to some of these topics. And that frustrates some people, but the solution is not to come up with new things to try to uh, add to what is already there, right? We just need to say, here's this book that Isaiah wrote. Here are the things that are true. He focuses in the first half of the book on the present and looking backward uh, with a little bit of prophecy, and the second half is largely looking to the future. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 2, introduces, I think, both this section and the second part of the book, where it says, Comfort, O comfort my people. Her warfare is ended, her iniquity has been removed, she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, had that actually taken place by the point at which Isaiah wrote it? No, I think this is looking to the future that there is going to be a time when Israel and the people of Judah would be reunited and would together be comforted, after God's judgment that purified them of their idolatry. But this peace and comfort only came in brief glimpses and temporarily prior to the exile. So Hezekiah chapter 39 basically ended with, and Babylon will come and carry people away to captivity and take all of your stuff, right? So it seems strange then to take the comfort, comfort my people, as though it's an immediate resolution to that. So it is looking to the future. Uh, but there's also a sense in which there is a section here from chapters 40 through 48 um, where God is dealing with the subject of idolatry. Why did Israel and later Judah go into exile? Because of idolatry. And so in chapters 40 through 48, we see God prevailing over idolatry and my plan is for us to look at this in three parts over the next few weeks. The first idea is that God will not share His glory with idols. You see that in chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. 
Okay? Um, the second part is Isaiah 42 through 44, where God redeems his people out of the blind and deaf foolishness of their repeated idolatry. So there is a lot of emphasis from 42, 14 down through the end of chapter 44 about these things that uh, the people are blind and deaf and led astray into idolatry, but the God is their redeemer, that he is the one who's chosen them. Here's the foolishness of their idolatry. It is God who's going to deliver them despite all these things. And then, as we come to chapters 45 through 48, we see God's work among the nations, both in putting the people into exile, in bringing them back from exile. There's a lot of discussion of God using Cyrus of Persia as his servant, um, which is strange to think of a pagan king as being acknowledged as a servant of God, but there is a sense in which God rules over all rulers, and so we shouldn't be surprised. But a discussion of God using Cyrus first to conquer Babylon, because that's where God's people were in captivity, then to take them from Babylon and restore them to the land. And so there's this discussion of the failure of Babylon's idols, a lament for Babylon, and then Israel's stubbornness, yet God's deliverance in spite of it. And so those three sections, chapters 40 through 42, and then 42 to 44, and then 45 to 48, is how we're going to divide this larger section that really all goes together. Today I think the big idea is this, glorify the true God because idols are nothing. Glorify the true God because idols are nothing. And the reason I think that we should see this idea of glorifying God here is because there's all of these questions that contrast the greatness of God with the weakness and temporary nature of people, particularly in chapter 40 and then some in chapter 41. Then there is the reality that um, God deserves praise, particularly in the middle section of chapter 42, but there are also these brief glimpses of the foolishness of idolatry. Our scripture reading, verses 18 through 20, closed with it, and we see it again in, uh, in chapter 41 about how the idols have failed and all those sorts of things. So we should glorify, praise, bring honor to the true God because idols are nothing. First idea here is that God and his word are eternal, but people are temporary. God and his word are eternal, but people are temporary. We see this in chapter 40. Uh, verses 1 through 11, but particularly 3 through 11. God's word lasts long after people fade away. First of all, we see God preparing a way for his messenger, verse chapter, or 40, verse 3. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So there's a messenger who's coming, who's clearing and preparing the way. There is an acknowledgement, I think, that we see in Matthew 3, for that matter, the other Gospels as well, that this was the role of John the Baptist and that there is a connection between uh, the ministry of John the Baptist and what Isaiah anticipated here. Uh, Matthew 3, uh, verse 1, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, when we see this preparing of the way in verses 3 through 4 of Isaiah 40, it sounds more like a, uh, like a terraforming project, right? Like a big construction project. This hill is high, let's make it flat. This valley is low, let's fill it in. Make this highway for God, right? 
But in the ministry of John the Baptist, it was a lot more, quite honestly, exclusively about issues like repentance and pointing to the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, right? It wasn't really about the desert actually being reshaped. So how do we reconcile those ideas? I think there is a sense in which John the Baptist is seen as the fulfillment of the one who is the messenger who is preparing the way, but God's work of actually physically reshaping the earth for the coming of Christ takes place right before the second coming. So uh, the, the mountain of the temple is, is torn in two, and, and this is raised up, and these things are made flat, and the Nile is now a pathway for people to walk across. All those sorts of things that we see throughout the book of Isaiah, I don't think ultimately happen until the end times events. But the coming of the messenger, looking to the work of Christ, we see that in the ministry of John the Baptist. There's also this question of what is being proclaimed. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there is a certainty in God's words in verses 1 and 2, in verse 5, and then the message in verses 6 through 8. What is it that's supposed to be proclaimed? All flesh is grass. It seems like a strange message to proclaim. This is a a word picture, right? When we think of grass, we don't think of something durable and enduring. If you have animals that are grazing on the grass, they they eat it, um, and they process it, and it's no longer grass. Some of them will rip it up out of the ground. uh, Drought, periods of drought will easily kill the grass. Like It can be blooming and have little flowers uh, on on the end of the piece of grass. But when the sun comes up and that dries out, it dies and it falls off and that becomes seeds and there's all sorts of imagery connected with that. But when he says flesh is as grass, he's not saying flesh is enduring like the mountains themselves. He's saying flesh is temporary and fleeting and weak and all of these sorts of ideas. There's still a beauty in it. Verse 6, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. There is a beauty to be appreciated even in things that are just green like grass. There's kinds of grass that have very interesting seed heads, and even the ones that don't, there is a beauty in just seeing here's a meadow or a field or a a, a pasture that has all this grass growing in it, but it's a temporary and a fleeting beauty. In contrast to that, where it withers and fades when God's breath blows upon it, verse 8, the word of our God stands forever. When we see this quoted by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, and he uses it in an interesting way, he says, um, All flesh is like grass. Well, let me start in verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. When he says seed that is perishable, he's drawing a parallel between humanity and the seed of the grass that falls off and is weak and temporary, but of that which is imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And so there's this fascinating way in which Peter brings together this idea of essentially a proclamation of judgment and the fleeting nature of humanity in contrast to God and His Word who lasts forever. And then he connects it with the hope of the Gospel, which is, yes, humanity is fleeting and temporary and in in many respects worthless, and yet through the power of the Gospel, we are connected 
with God's power who is eternal and changeless and offers us as well eternal life. And so there's this fascinating connection here between these things. For Isaiah, the emphasis is largely on God is great, people are weak and mortal, God is eternal, people die, God is all-powerful, people have limited power. But the way that Peter uses it, I think, ties it in very well to the gospel, which is to say the only solution to the temporary and fleeting nature of people as contrasted to God and his power is to come to God through the message of the gospel. And what is that? Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus. Jesus is the only way. We will all die, just like I was talking about in the announcement time. We will all die. We don't know when that day is going to come. We are fleeting. We are temporary. There's beauty and amazing things to be found in this life, but life is short. The only certain hope in the face of it is the word that God has proclaimed, particularly the message of the gospel. Turn from yourself and your idols and your own way. Turn to Jesus. He is your only hope in the midst of a world that is chaotic and in the midst of a life that is short and fleeting. Which incidentally is part of the message of Ecclesiastes as well. So that would be another passage to go look at. God's word lasts long after people fade away. God also will fulfill his word to deliver his people. I really like verse 9. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So if the first part of the message is life is short and fleeting and temporary and all those sorts of things, but God's word lasts, what's the other part of God's word? God is there for his people to deliver them which connects with what I was saying a moment ago about the hope of the gospel for us today. For them, it was deliverance from their enemies who had conquered them because of their idolatry. For us, it's deliverance from our idolatry, which has conquered us as our enemy through the hope of the gospel. Different situations, same basic message. Zion, Jerusalem, will proclaim to God's people, Here is your God. Verse 9, O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up. Do not fear. There's the reference in Romans where Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. Like the coming of the one with good news is an amazing and a wonderful thing, right? The good news for them, God is going to deliver you. God is going to rescue you. God is going to help you. The good news for us today, God will deliver you and rescue you and help you if you turn to him through Jesus. The two messages are not disconnected. One is just a development of the other. There's also this sense in which God is going to reveal his power in tender care for his people as a good shepherd. God is powerful. His, he comes in might. His arm is ruling for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. His reward, his, in, his inheritance, think about Ephesians. We are Jesus' inheritance that God has given to him. And then recompense, vindication, justice will be accomplished. God is going to come in judgment on the earth. And yet right after that, what does it say? Like a shepherd, he'll tend his flock and gather the lambs and carry them and gently lead the nursing ewes. If you've ever picked up and carried a baby sheep or goat or small animal like that, what do you do? You pick it up and you try to squash it because you're trying to show how strong you are? No. There's a sense of tenderness and care, right? Think about a human infant, right? You can't take a six-week-old baby and, and 
just be careless with that child, right? You, you hold carefully, and the strongest person who's a father or just some relative who's holding that baby is going to cradle and carefully hold that child because that child is fragile and needs tender care. That has nothing to do with the strength of the person. That's not really the question. The previous verse says God is strong and powerful. That's not really a question uh, of, that has to be shown in that moment. It's rather his tender care for his people. So God is going to fulfill his word to deliver his people. In power and might, with this proclamation of God is here, but also with gentleness and tender care. So God and His Word are eternal, but people are temporary. God's Word lasts long after people fade away, and God is going to fulfill that Word to deliver His people. God's Word stands. God's Word is that people fade away, but God's purpose stands. God's purpose is to show Himself strong to His people. He's able to do this because, secondly, God is alive as Creator and Ruler, but idols are created and powerless. We see this in the second part of chapter 40. God is the Creator and the ruler. Look at verse 12. Oceans of the world, palm of God's hand. Think about that for a moment. How big are the oceans? How vast do they seem to us? The picture is God can scoop them up just like you scooping water um, out of a river or a pond or whatever, and God could hold all of it like this. Now, does God have a hand? No. Is God even bigger than that? Describes yes. God is the one who fills the, the immensity of our universe and any others that exist, all of the galaxies um, that are out there. So we're not just talking the waters of the earth, which is this, but if you zoom further and further and further out, God is the one who is in charge of and created and sees and maintains all of the galaxies that we have discovered and some that we never will. And so you could take that picture and make it an even greater picture. Not just the oceans of the world in the palm of his hand, but the entirety of the universe, right? Which actually is what the next phrase there. He marks off the heavens by the span. Okay? God can do this and measure. How many of you measure things with your hand or your arm or your foot? We all do sooner or later, right? Because we can't find the tape measure. God doesn't need a tape measure. And God's tape measure would be so vast that it's beyond our comprehension. God can say, stretch from sky to sky. And it's about that big. Think about that for a minute. And then think about the fact that people think that they can thwart what God is doing. Calculates the dust of the earth by the measure and weighs the mountains in the balance and a hill in a pair of scales. God could say, okay, let's take Mount Everest and Mount McKinley and whatever other random mountains you can think of. Let's pile them all up and they're going to be on this side of the scale. I'm going to put a weight on this side. We're going to see how much they weigh. Again, God is great and powerful. But it's not just God's immensity as creator. We see it in verse 12. Let's jump over to verse 21. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. God 
unfolds the heavens, I said like a scroll earlier, but like a curtain, right? You have a curtain over your kitchen window or somewhere else in your house. You can't use the sky as your curtain. It's too big, right? But God can. You don't look down on the people of the earth as though they're grasshoppers. We get a little bit of the sense of that if we get way up high in an airplane, but for God, it's actually true all the time that he's great and they are as nothing in contrast. Um, And then this idea that God spreads the heavens out like a tent to dwell in. Um, I am reminded of what Paul says, I think both in Acts 12 and in Acts 17. God didn't need a temple as though it was his his house, right? Because God's so great and powerful that you can't contain him in a little building that people have made on his behalf. Was the temple in Jerusalem a great marvelous thing? Sure. But could it contain the immensity and the glory of God? Absolutely not. We also see God's greatness as creator, his immensity as creator. In verse 25, To whom would you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Again, this idea of shepherding. It's as though the stars are a flock of sheep or some other kind of animal, and God knows their names and God leads them along. These gigantic flaming balls of fire, of of explosive gas, and all these other things that make up the stars, God doesn't have to worry about being harmed by them. He can lead them along and put them in the right place just like a shepherd does sheep. And for God, it's no more difficulty than it would be for us to, to herd a small little group of animals along. God is immense as the Creator. But God is also wise in the unfolding of His plan and the helping of His people. So look at, back to verse 13. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him the way of understanding? There's uh, trivia shows where you have the opportunity to call somebody for help if you can't figure out a question. That's kind of the sense here. Who does God have to call for help? When he doesn't know the answer, who does God call to get help with the answer? The answer is nobody. Because God has all the answers. God knows all that there is to know. God needs nobody to say, hey, you know what? I know you got this plan, but I really don't think it's a great idea. We should do this instead. Or, I know you're planning to do this, but I really think you should do that. Or, you know, have you thought about this? No one can legitimately say to God, have you thought about this? Because God knows everything. We see this also in verses 27 to 31. Um, People question whether God actually knows and is aware about things. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with Wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So God is wise in the unfolding of His plan, verses 13 and 14, and in the helping of His people. 
God's people were questioning, where is God? I mean, the answer is, he's there, you've rejected him, you're receiving the due penalty of your error, he's going to continue to help you, and he's eventually going to restore you from exile. That's the, the long answer to their question. But that's not necessarily where Isaiah goes here. He says, you think that your way is hidden from God and he's not paying attention to you and he's forgotten about you? God's not like you. You get tired. You carry too many heavy things and you have to take a break. You run too far or bike too far or whatever else and you can't do it anymore. You get thirsty. You need food. You need rest. God is not like you. You expect people who are older to run out of strength sooner, but he says here, even youths and vigorous young men grow weary and tired and stumble badly, but those who wait for God will renew their strength. Now, this verse, I think, tends to get sort of pulled out and sort of made this vaguely inspirational thing. But think about the context here of what's going on. God's people have sinned, deserve God's wrath. God is mighty and powerful in contrast to the idols that they've been worshiping. And God says, even though you think that I've forgotten about you and you've forgotten that the reason that you're going through this difficulty is because of your sin, I haven't forgotten about you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you strength and I'm going to deliver you. Think about that verse in that context. It's not just, you know, the same thing gets done with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Paul wrote that when he's in jail, has nothing, has no expectation that life's going to ever be good again. Same thing here. The people of Israel don't think life is going to be good. This is not their inspirational quote, they're hanging on the wall. This is set in the context of judgment, and yet God is faithful and shows his power and his wisdom in helping his people. And then thirdly, God is the ruler over nations and all creation. So he's creator and ruler, immense as creator, wise as the creator, and ruler over all nations and everything. Verses 15 through 17, the nations are as a drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. All these nations that we fear, what's going on with Russia? What's going on with China? What's going on with Korea? What's going on with any number of nations that we fear because they might do harm with us? God says, yeah, it's like a speck of dust. Here's a little speck of dust. It's gone. God is the ruler over the nations. Which is why when you go back to a passage like Psalm 2, and it says that the one who sits in heaven laughs at the schemes of man, it's because they are as nothing compared to the greatness of God. He made them, He rules over them, they can do nothing apart from His plan. But not just them, but all of creation, um, which we see in verses 23 and 24. He reduces rulers to nothing, makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, sown, taken root in the earth, but he blows on them and they wither. Going back to that imagery of the grass, it's like the nations are a tree, and they get planted, and it looks like everything's good, and God blows and they disappear like dust. God is creator and ruler. And so God is alive as creator and ruler, but idols are created and powerless. In what way are idols created and powerless? Well, we see this in verses 18 through 20. Idols are made things. Are you going to compare God to something? Let's compare him to an idol just for sake of argument, since that's what you guys are hung up on worshiping. Verse 19. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. They're making a beautiful thing, but it's still a made thing. 
It has no existence of its own. It has no power of its own. It has no strength of its own. Why are idols powerless? Because what they are made of is worthless. Look at verse 20. You say, okay, you don't have a fancy idol. What's your idol look like? Goes and finds a tree. And he makes an idol that will not totter. And we're going to see when we get to um, chapter 44, here's what happens. I found a tree. I'm going to take this little part of it and I'm going to make it as an idol. I'm going to worship it. I'm going to take this part of it and I'm going to burn it so I can cook supper. we see any problem with that? Idols that are made in the image of people, which quite frankly is all the gods that people have ever worshipped, they're like me, but they're a little bit stronger or bigger or whatever, but they're still petulant children who sort of stomp about and break things and commit immorality and all those other sorts of things. Those are the gods of the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians before them and the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped bugs and cats and jackals and all sorts of other things, which is what Romans 1 talks about, right? Idolatry makes you stupid. You worship anything or anyone other than God and you become more and more blind to the sheer stupidity of what you are doing. I cut down a tree. I'm going to set some of it up in the corner of my house and worship it. Why? Here's a bug. Let's make a gold image of it and worship it. Why? Because when you reject God, you become like what you worship and what you worship leads you more and more to sheer and utter foolishness and stupidity. God is alive as creator and ruler. He holds the oceans. He measures the heavens. He leads the stars. And you say, yeah, I'm going to go worship this stick instead. I'm going to worship this car. I'm going to worship my job. I'm going to worship my family. I'm going to worship the feeling that I get when people say a particular thing to me. I'm going to worship those things instead of the God who made the heavens. Why? The solution to this is not that we move out from the city and look up at the sky, but I think it would help us from time to time to look up from the busyness of our life, to look away from the distractions that consume our days and say, God is amazing and look at what he's done and look at what he's made. Even that can be corrupted because it's not like the people in Isaiah's day that weren't outside seeing God's creation, they saw it, they just ignored it, right? You can stand at the Grand Canyon and say, wow, look at that accident. Or you can say, wow, look at what happened when the flood reshaped the earth, right? You can have the same conclusion looking at the same thing, but when we don't have the opportunity to reflect on these things because we're so busy and so looking down and focused on, on what's going on here, um, it makes it a lot easier to do idolatry, Right? Isaiah wants us to be consumed with the glory of God in contrast to the stupidity of idols. God is alive and rules over all as the Creator. Idols are worthless, so God rescues an idolatrous people whose idols have failed them. 
If the first point is that God and His Word is eternal, but people are temporary, that's sort of the backdrop, and then God is great, but idols are nothing, then what's going to have to happen? When God's people worship idols, they are going to fail them, and God has to step in and rescue His people instead. God delivers in power His own people. We see this in 41, 1-4. God stirred up. Uh, he calls this one from the east. Uh, we see also in verse 25 and following this stirring up of one from the north. Um, I was looking at one of the commentaries and they put it in an interesting way that I think is helpful. God brought the Persians through Babylon, which was to the east, but they were originally more from the north. And so the invaders are seen as coming from the north, but also from the east. And so this particular commentator was arguing that this is in fact a reference to the same king and group of people, which is the Persians who, who conquer in different ways and from different directions, but is still ultimately the same nation. I think contextually that has a fair bit of weight because of what we see in chapter 45 where he talks about Cyrus being his servant and the destruction on Babylon that comes from the Persians. Um, but he doesn't exactly specify in chapter 41 which nation it is that he's talking about. The point that's emphasized here is God is the one who stirs up this appointed ruler to carry out his purpose. So God is going to deliver his people, but he delivers them after raising up a pagan nation to conquer these other nations, which is a necessary first step because in this, in this future that Isaiah sees that we look back on historically... God's people have already been conquered by another pagan nation, so if God is going to send a ruler to deliver them, God's going to conquer that pagan nation first. The Babylonians carry the people of Judah into captivity. God sends the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. God then uses the Persians to send the Israelites back to their land. God reminds his people not to fear because he's the one who upholds them. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, whom I've taken from the ends of the earth, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Don't fear for I'm, or I said to you, you're my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Don't fear for I'm with you. Don't anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Another verse that we like to pull out of context. The context is Israel has sinned, but God hasn't forgotten about them. I think we can apply that to our lives, that even when we sin, God hasn't forgotten about us, but we have to remember the context from which it comes. God reminds his people not to fear because he's the one who upholds them. We see this echoes of Genesis 12. Those who, uh, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, and then later on, those who bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed. We see echoes of that here in this little section. And then we see this picture that we saw a few weeks ago of this idea that there are people who are in the desert who need water and they're in the wilderness and who's going to provide for them. Verse 17 down through verse 24. They're seeking water, but there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel and I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. God is going to provide for His people water in the wilderness when they have no hope of provision, just like He did leading them through the desert the first time when He's leading them back He's going to take care of them. And in the future days, when all the nations are around them, and it looks like there's no hope for them, God is going to provide for them and care for them yet again. 
To what end? Verse 20, that all may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. God intervenes on behalf of His people so people would see that He's the true God. So God delivers in power His own people. Why? Because idols can't help. Going back to verses 5 through 7. The coastlands have seen and are afraid when this pagan ruler, probably Cyrus, comes down from the, from the east and then from the north. The ends of the earth tremble, they draw near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So pagan nations unite against God. They say, if we unite, we'll be okay. If we join together, we'll be fine. But they can't overcome this wave of God's judgment that's going to flood over them. And then they turn to their idols. They trust in these idols that they've made and, and commended to one another, saying, oh, this is good to trust in. Verse 7, the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who sues metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and he fastens it with nails so that it won't totter. Think of, again, the sheer stupidity of this. I've got my idol. It's a really beautiful idol. Let's nail it down so it doesn't fall over. Think about the story of the, the idol of, of Dagon and the Philistines. And the Ark of the Covenant goes in there and it falls down. So they set it back up again. And then it falls down and it breaks in pieces. So they say, well, this is a problem. Let's get rid of this. If you have to prop up your idol, you shouldn't be worshiping it. If you have to wash it or maintain it, or take care of it, it's not something you should be worshiping because it can't help you. And so God says, I'm going to deliver you. Idols have failed. They're failing the pagan nations and they failed the people of Israel and Judah over and over again and they kept going back to them. And because they kept going back to them, they saw the foolishness of it uh, in verses 25 through 28, God's sending this judgment through this, this pagan ruler. I've aroused one from the north. From the rising of the sun, he'll call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. Who could have seen this? Who could have foretold it? No one. I would have given a message to my people, which goes back to earlier in Isaiah. Who am I going to give a message to? The prophets and the kings are all doing their own thing and care nothing for my word. Am I going to tell it to babies who can't even speak? Am I going to tell it to foreigners who aren't even part of my nation? Verse 29 of chapter 41, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. Because God's people keep worshiping idols and pagan nations keep worshiping idols and God has no one to speak his word to and the people keep going their own way, he is going to deliver his people, but he's going to do it through his perfect servant. And so that's the last little section here, chapter 42, the first 13 verses. We'll go through this quickly. God sets up his perfect servant to proclaim his word so that God will be praised. So we saw this idea of proclaiming God's word in the beginning, the messenger preparing the way and all those sorts of things. Now the servant is coming, the one that the messenger has prepared the way for. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Who could that be? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Any similarity in those two phrases? This is the first of the references to Jesus as God's servant, the Messiah as God's servant, that we're going to see several more of as we go through the rest of the book. Because 
Every ruler, every servant, every prophet, every judge failed in the history of Israel and Judah. In some way or another, God now sends a perfect servant to fulfill all of those roles. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. So Jesus comes with compassion on those who are lost and scattered and all those things. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Well, again, that goes back to um, this idea of a child will be born to us, a son given to us. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That was Isaiah chapter 9. Same idea here in Isaiah 42. God's servant will bring justice with compassion. God's servant is appointed to deliver those who are in need of deliverance. Verse 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. To do what? To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. The people who sat in the darkness have seen a great light and upon them the light of God has shined. God sends His servant to do His will. Why? God does this because He will not share His glory with another. God's people failed. Their idols failed. Their kings failed. Everyone failed. But when God, after everyone has failed, appoints His servant, who is God, to fulfill all of these things, who gets praise for it? God does. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Why did the Israelites, why did the people of Judah fail over and over again in all these works that they tried to do? Because when they trusted in idols, God was not going to let them succeed because God was not going to let them receive glory, the idols and the demons and what the people were worshiping, instead of God receiving the glory for delivering his people. But God is going to bring forth amazing things. Verse 9, The former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Again, revealing His wisdom. What is the response to all this? Verses 10 through 13, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and those who dwell on them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements of where Kedar inhabits, the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against His enemies. So, because people are temporary but God is eternal... Because God is God, but idols are worthless. Because God rescues idolatrous people when their idols have failed them. Repent while there is time, because God's word is sure. But your plans will fail, and your life will end, and you will stand before the God whose word is eternal. So are you ready for that day? And then worship God, not worthless idols. Because God is worthy of worship, and idols are nothing, and it is sheer stupidity to worship them. And turn to a God who is merciful to deliver people from empty worship of worthless idols. 
And when you do this, like verses 10 through 13 describe, you will glorify the true God because you really and truly see that idols are nothing. Let's pray. Dear God, as we come before you, it would do us well to remember that you are a God who is immense and vast and powerful as creator. And the only reason that we have the right to stand before you is because of the work that Jesus has done opening a way to your throne that you would hear our requests and our fears and our prayers, whatever they might be. There's this amazing contrast between your immensity and power and majesty and glory and the fact that you still call us to draw near. There are times in all of our lives and maybe even in this moment when we worship the works of our hands and the empty things of this world Lord, whatever you have to do to break us of those loves, help our hearts to desire that you would do that. Because we're not supposed to love the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life because that's worldliness. And we're not supposed to be friends with the world because friendship with the world is to be your enemies. And yet over and over and over again, and some because they've never yet turned to you, some because we keep running back, like a dog to vomit and like a pig to the muck and manure that it wallows in, we keep wanting to run back to those things or we keep wanting to stay in those things instead of turning to you for the very first time. And so, Lord, whichever circumstance we might find ourselves in, that we need to trust you for the first time and continue to trust you or we need to return to a wholehearted, fervent trust in you, do that work in our hearts. And if in this moment we are trusting you, Lord, then give us the strength to endure and to faithfully follow after you because we are enthralled by the glory of who you are and we see the emptiness of the idols that we might otherwise worship. Lord, help us to rejoice that you sent Jesus to do what none of us could do, that kings and nations and rulers and demons and false gods all failed to deliver and to rule and to bring salvation and to provide justice, and all these other sorts of things, Jesus fulfills all of those things perfectly. And so we praise you for the unfolding of your plan in this way as well. Lord, help us to glorify you. Help us to see that idols are nothing, but that you are worth everything. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.